Hi, everyone. Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. Carrie and I are back this week to talk about keeping pets and families together during and after this pandemic. Carrie, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, throughout this pandemic, the community had responded to, um, you know, having furry friends in their homes in a different way than they have in the past. And so now um, my family, at least, I don't know if, uh, about you, have been asking what's going to happen to these like, quote unquote, pandemic pets that people have been bringing into their home. You know, how are they going to adjust when folks return back to work? Have you been hearing about this? I've been hearing about it, and I personally am ready to surrender surrender my uh, nearly feral dogs after the <laughs> pandemic. So I'm going to be joining all those people soon because our dogs have just gone absolutely berserk over the course of the pandemic. I'm I'm of course being facetious. I'm not returning our beloved dogs, but holy cow, this pandemic has complicated pet keeping and pet acquisition and all yeah. sorts of things in God knows how many ways. Yeah, I I know at least for Omi, whenever we head outside the door now for more than ten minutes, it's like. Oh, what? <laughs> where are you guys going? Um, but anyway, we were, it's a really exciting topic because these questions have been kind of flying around a little bit more, and we're excited to spotlight what's really going on in the whole uh, industry. We're chatting with Lindsay Hamrick, Director of Shelter Outreach and Engagement at the Humane Society of the United States. Lindsay, thank you so much for sitting down to chat with us. We're really happy that you're here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Lindsay, we mentioned a little bit earlier, there's been some news out there about this topic of the fate of these pandemic pets. Um, So can we get it straight, you know, right here, right at the start, as we are approaching this maybe post-pandemic world as we're transitioning, are recently adopted pets really being returned to the shelters and droves? We are not seeing any evidence that people who adopted or acquired a pet last year are suddenly starting to return them to animal shelters. So I think that logically, we all know that. We know that people acquire pets because of all of the benefits that they give to us, especially during a stressful year like we've had. Um, And so a year later to then um, sort of haphazardly decide that the pet doesn't fit in would be a very odd phenomenon. Um, And we have not been concerned about that at the Humane Society of the United States. The data does not back that up. So um, I think what we're seeing is what we always see, which is that people really want to stay with their animals. They love their pets and uh, they're doing the best that they can. So, Lindsay, basically you're saying what we've got here is a case of fake news. Hashtag fake news. The lamestream media (laughs) taking a couple of anecdotes and turning it into a bigger story than it actually maybe is. I mean, I think to their credit, there's, uh, you know, I think it's it's okay to be nervous. This has been a really devastating and weird year. And we do expect that some animals will be separated from their families. Um, I think the part that doesn't land so well is sort of this idea that people are just going going to sort of randomly start surrendering animals when there's so much more behind the reasons why people have to give up their pets. Yeah, thank you so much for raising that. I think, you know, like this is an ongoing sort of piece of, I think, um, mythology that I think we're in in some ways animal shelters, you know, all, all sort of animal welfare groups help kind of helped play a role in building the mythology that we're now trying to dismantle a bit to a degree, because I, th- I think that 
as I think you could attest, Lindsay, and I hope you can say more about this, you know, there was for a long time, you know, animal shelters and the people who work there just see a lot of really tough stuff and they kind of encounter some, some rough things now and then. And so the sort of inclination to, to have these fears around people and, and the sort of um, potential that they might give up on their pets. Um, it has some sources in the daily re lived realities for shelters. But I think over the years, it's it, like the data shows that that sort of like give up the pet or the drop of a hat thing is not real. Absolutely. And I think that to your point about animal welfare in general, um, you know, we all have a role that we've played in sort of perpetuating an idea that people sort of last minute get to this point of needing to surrender an animal when what we know from the data and from lived experiences is that it's usually, I always say that the day that somebody surrenders a pet is the, the last day of a string of bad days that they have been facing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when you talk to most shelter staff and volunteers, I know in my experience over nine years of sitting at an intake desk, I cannot think of a single person who brought an animal in, whether it was a lost pet or their own pet, who was not distraught and uh, crying or trying to hold it together because they were sitting there in front of a stranger trying to go through this difficult process. Um, and now that we have so much better data around things like systemic poverty and under-resourced communities that don't have any access to things like veterinary care or even basic pet supplies, yeah. I think that the animal welfare field has really taken note of the, the systemic issues that lead to pet surrender and also lead to all kinds of other challenges for people. Lindsay, you raise a really good point here because I know we were, you know, debunking the fake news in, in you know, a, a little bit before, but there is also an incredibly important story that you just brought up about the impacts that the pandemic has on some animal lovers. Again, unconditional love, but they are also struggling with, you know, to access care and supplies for their pets. Um, even before this pandemic. And now it just exacerbated the issue. And so do you think that the communities, um, have you seen a response in that way? Yeah, so any reason that people were forced to surrender pets pre-pandemic will continue to be uh, a reason for surrender post-pandemic. And if anything, it's of course made things worse. So when you're talking about economic reasons, uh, those have, have of course had a, a giant impact on families over the pandemic. People who have lost their jobs or they're, they're underemployed or um, aren't making enough money to be able to uh, afford transportation to be able to get to a veterinary clinic or to get to a pet supply store. Um, so th that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that part of the way the public responded last year and certainly that local organizations responded was in offering things like free pet food, uh, really thinking about how can we play a role in access to veterinary care, uh, whether it's affordability or, or literally getting animals to a clinic. Um, particularly during the pandemic, it's not just that people may not have transportation, it's that people couldn't leave their homes. Yeah. So how do you get to a vet clinic um, which is already overbooked because the other layer of challenge here is that we have a real shortage of veterinarians in this country. And so veterinarians are burned out and their staff are burned out. And it, it really is just this perfect storm of the need to create structural change mm -hmm. so that people have access to the things that pets need. And then you add on top of that, that more and more people are having, uh, acquiring pets. 
And so you have more animals that need care, which is awesome because that means that more and more people recognize the benefits that pets bring to us. Uh, but the, the sort of supply side of things, the ability to have access to care and, and to pet food is going to in, in continue to grow. Such a good point, Lindsay. I think one of the things I was thinking about recently, you know, like one of the issues that we have looked at here off and on is the, the transport issue. Like we sort of, I think a lot of folks who have the privilege of having their own private vehicle, they think, of course you can take your animal to the vet, right? But for folks who don't have that and who are dependent on public transportation, you have to navigate the whole question around, will the, will the bus allow your dog or your cat to come on the bus? And now, I mean, with the way COVID has impacted things, like sometimes the buses are not even running or they have limitations for who can get on them and how many. So I can only imagine that things like that have become even tougher. So, and then once you get to a veterinarian, will they even be open? Like, that's one of the things I think we looked to address pretty early in this, in this situation. Lindsay, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we've done to sort of address these needs as we've seen them coming up? Yeah, so uh, we've partnered quite a bit with local organizations. And so one of the ways that we've tried to address this challenge is we did a giant grant program last year called Spay Together, where we funded 50,000 space and neuters, which also included things like basic vaccinations. Um, it was a way to try to get a little bit of a handle on the backlog of surgeries that happened last spring and summer when veterinary clinics did need to close um, to things that weren't um, absolutely necessary. And so um, I think we're, it's going to be a few years before we really get a handle on that backlog, but we tried to at least offset some of the costs and, and to try to create um, safe environments for veterinary teams to be able to provide that service. On the pet food side, uh, the Chewy company has been absolutely incredible the last year and a half. Um, last year alone, our Pets for Life program and our Rural Area Veterinary Services program distributed over a million pounds of pet food wow. to, in, uh, to under-resourced communities because of our partnership with Chewy, which is essentially giving away free food and then HSUS is covering the shipping costs of that. This year, Chewy extended the program, and so now we're working with local shelter and rescue partners to get food to even more communities. Um, so we are probably coming up on a million pounds of food distributed already this year. Um, so if the partnership continues, which we hope that it does, um, we're probably looking at a few million pounds of food that will be distributed from um, this partnership and all of the local organizations that are handing it out to owned pets in their communities. That is, that is amazing to hear. Um, Lindsay, I was curious, the last time that we had spoke, uh, you know, we've been talking about adoption throughout this, this episode, but I know that fostering was also another huge way that the community had stepped up during this pandemic. Are we seeing any changes there or is that still continuing just as strong? I think the change that we might see as people start to go back to work is, um, whether or not folks feel like they have the, the time, because really part of what drove the fostering piece was just this huge groundswell of I'm stuck at home and uh, can I have a litter of kittens to hang out with? And, and what I hope has happened, and we haven't seen enough data on this yet, what I hope has happened is that people realize that you can foster and be uh, at work full time. There are plenty of categories of animals who will do just fine with that kind of setup. So if there's a shift, I think it might just be fine tuning which pets will be the right fit for your experience. But um, as we head into what is normally kitten season around some parts of the country, there's still definitely a need for people to step up for cats and kittens in particular. 
It's a great negotiation piece with your boss for going remote too. Hey, I can have a litter of kittens and just stay home and work for you. Right. So that's a great like piece. you can get your boss kittens. I mean, you know, that's get a wide if I've ever, that's a promotion if I am, <laughs> you know, hi, I can get you a kitten by three o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but that, that raises a, good, a really good point too. If, you know, if you do have a full time job, can you still be a foster parent? Absolutely. And Lindsay, you know about this personally, right? You're, uh, you're in the middle of uh, dealing with, uh, how many fosters do you have right now? Well, so I made a shift this year and I am trying to have some better boundaries around fostering. So <laughs> when I saw the public step up and come out in droves, it actually meant that some of us who have been fostering for a long time got to take a little bit of a breather. Right. So uh, thank you to the public for that. Um, I'm currently uh, sort of co-fostering an owned dog. So one of the shifts that I've made personally is I'm trying to provide temporary housing for animals who are still owned by their people. Mm -hmm. So let's skip the whole surrender piece. How can we support owners in being reunited with their pets mm -hmm. at some point? Housing is one of the major drivers of, sur of surrender to, to the shelters. It always has been. Um, we know that there are tens of millions of renters in this country that without the right policies are facing potential eviction. And evictions have always been an issue in this country, but uh, during and post pandemic, it will continue to be a real problem. So when somebody is otherwise, you know, doing really well with their pet and they can't find a pet friendly, safe, affordable place to live, that's going to drive the bulk of surrender. So I was approached by a man in my community a couple of months ago who had to move out of his previous rental unit that did allow dogs um, into a very, he had to do this very quickly. All he could find was a place just down the road from me that doesn't allow animals. And so what we've negotiated with his landlord is that his dog literally stays the night with me and then he takes his dog to work during the day. So every night Ruby shows up, she's a 13 year old border collie mix. She's like the easiest dog in the entire world. Yes. She sleeps on my couch, she eats dinner. And then when I wake up in the morning, she's already gone. Wow. So he has a year long lease. We're looking at potentially doing this until next February. Um, and then I'm hopeful that he will have enough time to be able to find a pet friendly place by then. Oh, Lindsay, that is so interesting. Like, so I'm, I'm really fascinated about this from a sort of geographic, you're, you're in New Hampshire, right? That's your, yeah. So I think one of the things that we've been discussing off and on over the years is the ways that um, as the sort of pet population um, issue sort of shifts and changes and becomes more sort of community specific, because we've gone as a country from having sort of a nationwide pet, pet overpopulation issue to an issue where it's more like, some communities are still overwhelmed. Some communities are actually at the point where they have almost solved, for example, dog overpopulation. And one of the things that like what you're describing, it sounds like sort of a move towards sort of a new model of what shelters and rescuers and fosterers can do in their own communities. Do you expect that to sort of grow over time? Absolutely. And I also think that the field is catching up to what communities did for each other all along. Mm -hmm. Like plenty, how many of us like have had friends or family that have asked for some help during a transition period with their pets. And the community has been doing this for a long time. I think the field is now trying to find ways to support this. So how do we help create foster networks that are for owned pets um, so that people can look for pet friendly housing? There's not a set date there. Like that can take six months for someone. So can we create a, a real system and structure that 
gives a safe place for animals to go um, in the hopes of reunification later on, whether it's for that or maybe the human um, person in the relationship has to go into the hospital for a certain period of time, et cetera. Um, and then if they can't be reunited, do we need the shelter even then? So can we help support community members rehoming to one another, which people have been doing for a very long time? Uh, there's a new website uh, over the last couple of years called Home to Home, which was created by one of our shelter partners, the Panhandle um, Animal Shelter in Idaho. And it really helps to set up uh, people to be able to rehome by themselves with some guidelines, with some advice, um, with some support, but how do we actually move animals when we need to into another family? And I think that piece of how do we support people um, instead of waiting for that last day where they're in complete crisis and have to come to the shelter, how do we prevent that from happening? But also shelters will always be a safety net for some animals. So I don't see a complete end to shelters being the safe place for a lot of pets to go. It's just why they're coming into us in the first place has been changing. Yeah, it seems like that kind of um, sort of community-based networking can, it's not only great for the supporting the animals and the pet owners, but it also supports the shelters because that means that they are getting the animals who really have no other option and can, and can work with them and help them better. Yeah, and I would also just add like it's a, it's a transition in preserving the human animal bond because Ruby, for example, is like the nicest old dog ever. Like I could, we could find a home for her this afternoon, mm -hmm. but let's not do that because she's been with her dad for 13 years. And mm -hmm. like, if you could see her when she gets to my house, she sits on the couch the first like two minutes and stares out the door, just like waiting for him to come back. And then she resigns herself to sleeping on the couch. And then she wakes up in the morning and she lets out this giant bark as soon as he shows up. And like, that's what we're trying to preserve. And I think that's what shelters have always tried to preserve, but we've been so inundated with overpopulation that we haven't always had the chance to get to these root causes that, that we now are really addressing. And I love that it's not just this or that. It's, you know, it's not this, mm -hmm. I have to adopt or not have a pet or I have to foster or, or not, you know, there are, there are a lot of options that you're giving that, you know, even I didn't know uh, this great network. That's a, it's a really, really cool opportunity to participate in ways that make sense for you as an individual. So really, really cool things. So you were talking about Ruby. I was, I was wondering how Ruby's owner, uh, how Ruby reacted and, you know, she was dropped off at night. Luckily for Ruby, she seems fine for my dog. Separation anxiety after 14 months is a real thing. Yeah. yeah, and so are there are there ways or resources like my local shelter or can HSUS transition? Can can I help get resources on how you know going back to the office if that's like a real thing or just everyday life? Are there resources there? Yeah, so we can put in the show notes, uh, Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association, our vet affiliate, and um, they did this awesome training webinar last year from some vet behaviorists to help people understand some of the things that you can do to sort of not just acclimate your pet, but acclimate you, because let's face it, we're going to go through a transition, leaving our animals too. Um, I can say as a, as a dog trainer that it would be pretty rare for a dog who did fine before the pandemic, if you've had the dog um, from before the pandemic, to suddenly have really severe separation anxiety when you go back. That transition is very unlikely. Um, for dogs in particular and cats who were acquired during the pandemic and really have never been away from you, um, the best thing to do is to just start practicing on a small scale. So 
go run an errand without your dog for the first time. What? Say goodbye, leave them yeah. alone, uh, leave for an hour and come back. And uh, for both dogs and cats, they benefit a lot from a lot of exercise, like use their minds in a different way. So they're not just obsessing about you being gone. So a little bit of a longer walk in the morning um, with your cat, like add 20 more minutes of play before you uh, peace out on her. And she's horrified that you've abandoned her forever. Um <laughs> And then dog owners can also look at things like doggy daycare and a dog walker to come check in just so that it, the stretch of time is not quite as long. Thank I you. That's great advice, Lindsay. Yeah. I, I, it did make me think, um, you know, like I think that those techniques work almost all the time and they did eventually work for my old dog, but I, it just made me laugh because the very first time with one of our old dogs, this was maybe 15 years ago, um, I tried this exact technique where I was like, okay, she's been, we, we adopted her three days ago. She's got no time by, by herself. We're going to step out for five minutes. <laughs> and when we did it, um, we came back and she had left a comment on my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Everything ended up fine eventually, but she definitely she, she expressed some opinions. <laughs> Do it again, I dare you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, so Lindsay, you've given a few examples of how people in their own community can help and get involved. Are there other um, opportunities for individuals who want to take that next step or continue to take the step to help those either in their community or, you know, pets in the area? Yeah, I think the most important thing you can do is reach out to your local animal shelter or rescue and find out what they are hearing is, is the biggest need. So in some communities, that might be donating pet food to their pet food pantry because those pantries have really been a lifeline over the pandemic and beyond. Um, for some people, it may mean talking to your elected officials about better housing policies, about really looking at some of these systemic issues that have led to families being separated. Um, so rental forgiveness programs right now are such a critical piece to keeping people in their homes. Um, and so reach out to your elected officials and, and talk with them about how this impacts people who have pets, which mm -hmm. when you're looking at a country that has 70 something percent of people who have pets, we are the majority. We do have a voice in, mm -hmm. in politics when it comes to those issues. Um, and then in terms of volunteering and fostering and donating, of course, uh, your local shelter will have any tips or specific needs that they have around those programs. Shelters are um, reopening in stages, and it really depends on where you live. So some of the shelters may already have opened up their volunteer program fully, where you can actually go to the shelter and help walk dogs and things like that. Other shelters are going to wait a little bit longer, um, understandably, until um, they know a little bit more about where we're at with the pandemic. So uh, your local org will be able to help you sort through where they're at with that. Lindsay, thank you so much. This conversation, as usual, is, is extremely engaging. We covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that you wanted to leave the listeners with before we um, ended our conversation? I don't think so. I think we covered a, a lot of good stuff. I think I just remind um, everyone that people are trying. They're trying really hard. People go to great lengths to stay with their pets. And so let's, you know, let's try to be as compassionate as possible when that bond is broken and when they have to surrender an animal or rehome an animal to their family and friends. It's a, it's not an easy decision, even if people sort of look like they're fine. Uh, people mask that pain really well. And so I'm just really optimistic that the pandemic brought the public into the fold and the 
public really stepped up in a whole bunch of diverse ways to support people and their pets. And I think that that will continue for a long time. Uh, Lindsay, thank you so much. Lindsay Hamrick, Director of Shelter Outreach and Engagement at the Humane Society of the United States. A great conversation as always. That's all we have for today's show. To find out more how you can help communities and pets affected by the pandemic, you know where to find us, humanesociety.org. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Humane Voices. Thank you.